in this episode of Boss Files. I lost a lot of blood. Um, I hemorrhaged about 800 milliliters, which is about two pints of blood. You know her from her supermodeling days, but did you know her work now saves countless lives? Christy Turlington Burns was driven to help new mothers around the world because of her own life-threatening complication delivering her first child. I came across really staggering information, which was that the complication I experienced was the leading cause of death for women and girls around the world. So she took action, and she founded Every Mother Counts, a nonprofit dedicated to making pregnancy and childbirth safe for everyone. Today, her mission is an urgent one here in the United States and abroad. I think what you're finding is that less women are getting the prenatal care early enough on, which then allows you to recognize signs in advance and kind of sets you up for a more successful delivery and outcome. Plus, how her father's death from lung cancer was the turning point that led to her activism, and why she says her confidence comes from her education, not from her supermodel looks. Here's my conversation with Christy Turlington Burns. Christy, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And thank you for all you do for all of us moms, which we will talk a lot about with Every Mother Counts. But let's begin a little bit earlier on in your life and how you got here. Because many people think supermodel when they hear Christy Turlington Burns. I no longer think that Mm -hmm. because I know you and I know what you're doing now. But you graced, you know, a thousand plus magazine covers. But your life now is not that. It is being a mother. It is being an advocate. It is being a champion for women and pregnant women. How would you describe yourself today? Hmm. Um, uh, Spread too thin. (laughs) Like Uh, every mom. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I think, uh, you know, I I like to call myself an advocate. Um, I'm a mom, um, woman. Uh, you know, the, the earlier career, I think it's true that I think I'll always probably be known more as that because for a very long time, that's what I did and that's, you know, that's what my name and my face are, are have done representing other brands. Um, but really for quite a long time, I've been very much focused on, you know, continuing my education mm-hmm. and, um, you know, really trying to put all of my experience and all of my relationships and all that I know and see in the world um, take good use. And it has given you a platform to be able to do so much good. Absolutely. You told Town and Country last year, quote, the supermodel thing is not me. I don't know what it is. (laughs) I tried to do everything I could to distance myself from it. Yeah, you know, the word itself kind of emerged uh, in the early 90s. And I've been asked so many times who, who coined the phrase, and I was like, well, I think there was like a modeling competition on television that my <laughs> agents at the time, who were the, the Ford family, right. they had the supermodel of the world. I think that's the first time the word was used. But suddenly in the early 90s, my group of peers and I were given this, this name. And I think it was sort of the beginning of you know, just extreme commercialization of the fashion industry and a lot of other industries. But I think that late late 80s, early 90s, it sort of all was happening at the same time. And suddenly, an industry that had been around for a very long time, there was this access. There were cameras behind the stage. And yeah. There was not a lot of mystery anymore. Suddenly, it was like, what makeup and who's there and what's happening? Like, every single thing was covered. And I think with that, we were just in that place at that time. Um, and I was a little bit... Um, 
uneasy with it, not only because I'm a pretty private person and I was even then, I always had the hope that I would do something else. And so the more that I was attached to... Sure, you get boxed in. Yeah. You can feel boxed in. Yeah. You call yourself a big risk taker who doesn't mind failing. I often wish that I were more of a risk taker. Um, what risks have you taken? What are the biggest risks? And why is that part of how you define yourself? It's interesting. I, I took a risk recently, and I, I have to say that I, I did not come through it like feeling as good about it as, as I should. And that was doing a, a TED Talk. <laughs> it was a, good for you. It, yeah, it was, um, you know, I, I do take on too much, like you said, like so many of us do. And, and I'm also really self-critical. And so I, I want to do as much as I can for the organization and, and the issue of that course. I'm advocating for. But at the same time, sometimes that like lack of knowing myself, and I feel like I know myself pretty well, but that lack of like really listening, under, maybe? listening exactly, to yourself? like too much, too much. Um, so we sort of threw in a bunch of things at the same time. I ran a marathon, did a TED talk. <laughs> you just ran another half. Yeah, marathon. I just ran another half. Like you know, just too, too much. And um, and with that, I take a lot of others with me. So I think my whole team was like, ah. But I feel like the risk taking in the sense of putting myself in uncomfortable waters. Yeah. Um, I've been doing that for some time. And I and I, I, I know by now that I'll always come through it learning. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's what I'm, I'm not afraid to do. Um, but sometimes you can learn the same lesson over and over again and, and so, much, oh, so much work to do. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think for me, like it can be very easy to be complacent and to be comfortable. And um, that has never been appealing to me. I mean, so to, to be honest, you could have after your quote unquote supermodel years, you know, had a happy marriage, had your children, and just sat back. And that is the opposite of what you've done by building Every Mother Counts. And we'll, we'll dive into that in a moment. But growing up, one of three girls, mm -hmm. what was it like growing up? Um, it, was, it was great. I mean, I'm from uh, Northern California in the East Bay Area of San Francisco. And I grew up um, the middle of three girls. My two sisters are visiting me right now, so oh. we've had a great weekend together. Um, you know, my dad had all girls in his marriage to my mom. He was married before and has a son. But pretty much he thought, like, we're going to do all the things that a boy or a girl could do. Good. And so we all played soccer and softball and ran track and skied and you know, anything and everything he wanted to expose us to as much as possible. And um, and I value that a lot. I mean, we, now my children are going through the same thing. My husband and I both have them doing so many sports and so Good. many things. And I think a lot of that, that teamwork and also just the kind of, again, challenging myself. Some sports I was much more naturally inclined than others. I was tall and kind of lanky. And so I was fast, but I wasn't always so coordinated. So um, <laughs> I've become, I think, an athlete later in life because now I actually have like the knowledge and the capacity and the strength and the sort of focus. And the coordination. And the coordination. My husband, <laughs> my husband still asks me, I don't understand how you were a figure skater because I'm, the mo I'm not coordinated on land and I run into things, but on the ice, something was just, just different for me growing up in Minnesota. Oh, that's so great. You bring up your father mm -hmm. and he was huge in your life in, in, in those ways and in so many more. He died of, of lung cancer. It was 1996? Yes, 96. Actually, 97, I 97. think. 97. I was 28. Same year uh, my dad died. Wow. Yeah. Cancer, too. Really? Yeah. 
Yeah, and it was, it, I was not surprised. My dad was a lifelong smoker, actually. Um, he had had a heart attack at 50, had angioplasty, which at the time was a very new um, alternative to open-heart surgery, and he was a pilot. And so at the time, um, even the FAA didn't really have any guidelines of what to do with someone who'd gone through that procedure versus the open heart. And so it was a scary time for our family, and we ended up, we had left Northern California for his job and then moved back quite quickly and then you know he wasn't able to do the thing that he loved more than anything Fine. for a long time yeah for about five or six years he did get to come back and and finish his career but then by then you know he worked for Pan Am so there were a lot of other um, problems and yeah. issues and 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 so um, but then when he had lung cancer I mean really it was not a surprise you know he'd been coughing up blood for a fair amount of time he had come here around Thanksgiving and I just moved into a new place and he just wasn't himself he couldn't you know usually he would just walk up and down Manhattan and he just never would take a you know he just was like out there and yeah. taking it on and he just was a completely different person. He went back, we got through Christmas, and then um, and then I sent him to Mayo Clinic, and they did, you know, the full body sort of scan, and of course it was like rampant stage four lung cancer. And from that point, you know, six months they gave him, and it was exactly six, six months. months. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, after that, sort of searching for, it seems, what can I do? How can I prevent, you know, more children from losing their parents? You went on television, uh, this ad campaign, tearful, talking about your experience, pleading with others. You reached out to the American Cancer Society asking, what can I do? Talk about that moment and also how, I mean, that seems to have, from everything I've read, changed the trajectory of your life because it opened your eyes to what the most meaningful work is that you could do. That's true. Um, yeah, so when I lost him, uh, it was devastating, but I had I had had a really active role in his healthcare. Um, I was commuting back and forth because I was back at school at that point, and I was home almost once a week to be able to be there for his chemo and to really navigate the doctors and you know be that advocate for him. Um, once he passed, and I had been a smoker in my teens as well. Um, fortunately, when he was diagnosed, I had quit and 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 confident as a non-smoker at this point. But I sort of went out there like, what can I do, and how can I tell my story, and how can I help others? And um, it was actually hard to get a few organizations to pick up the phone. I think really, they were, yeah. I think there was a little bit of um, suspicion for anybody in the public eye to like, well, like what's her motive? Yeah, what's your motive, and also what um, what if you don't? Because really, the chances of staying smoke free are, at least yes. then, especially very, very, um, very low. And so maybe they just didn't have a lot of trust that mm. that you know I would not be one of those people. Um, but. Eventually, there was a great campaign that was like tobacco-free yeah, kids, I, I think, that. and it was a truth campaign. And so my story- It was after story, all those lawsuits. Exactly. And a lot of states had a lot of extra money to spend, and so um, we filmed a PSA here in, in New York, and um, you know, I knew that it was gonna be emotional, but actually, in the and I'm not an actress by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> just by saying the words over and over again and really like yeah. finally taking in what had happened and what I had hoped to get across with this public service announcement I just completely lost it on camera um, and I think that that campaign was really effective I still hear people will come to me and they'll say you know I quit smoking because of that PSA or really? I quit smoking because I heard your story still. and that gives me so much 
pride because, I mean, that's why, I mean, like to put yourself out there and to share something, you know, I'd hope that his story or my story or the yeah. combination of the two would be impactful, and, and it was. Um, was that the turn for you? I mean, you, you, you were already in school, so, I mean, we know this modeling thing is not going to be what you're going to do for the rest of your life. You knew that at that time. But w were those months and those moments after your father died the turning point for you to say, you know, I don't, I don't want to go on to become the CEO of a bank. I mm -hmm. want to go on to become the CEO of and found what is now Every Mother Counts eventually. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think that feeling of, um, of in a way, healing mm -hmm. a, a loss like that through taking action um, was really important. And then I think to have that feedback, that immediate feedback, and then to see that there was a need in, in the public's sort of space for someone to be advocating, um, especially a woman. Yeah. So in the late 90s, um, during the time I was doing a lot of public health advocacy for tobacco cessation and prevention, there was the first Surgeon General's report on women and tobacco. It's kind of That's insane, Quite late. And yeah. so that shocked me and I got to participate in some of those meetings in DC. And then when I sort of dug in to more of that information, it was like because of the way that we're made and the way that we're different yeah. from our male counterparts, that makes thing everything, a lot of things, more dangerous for our bodies. It's our reproductive systems. Yeah. So um, I think that's sort of where the turn of like women's health became a little bit more of a focus. You know, at this point, I'm in my later 20s. Um, I haven't met my husband yet, but soon after. And then I become a mom. So yeah. I have this sort of public health kind of foundation. Yep. And then as I go through this next experience and phase and of my life. And that really changes life, everything for you. This is fast forward to 2003. You give birth to your first child, Grace. Mm -hmm. And she's fine now. She's thriving, 14-year-old. Yes. <laughs> but it, it wasn't fine, right, sort of at the end stages of labor and delivery. Yeah, so I had a really good pregnancy with her. I, you know, I'd gone back to school. I'd had a, one career and had plans to have another. Um, I felt like I was coming into motherhood, you know, really with my eyes wide open. Um, and I had a, a, I felt good through the pregnancy and even through the delivery. I had a midwife and I had a great obstetrician that backed my midwife. And I had lots of options here in New York City of where to deliver. And um, and a husband that was incredibly supportive and came to every appointment. Which is so important. Everything was great. Um, the part that I hadn't expected was after I delivered her, um, I didn't have, I didn't deliver my placenta, which is the third stage of labor. And usually it's kind of an after fact. It's like it just happens. Yeah. It's, you know, I'd watch my sisters deliver their babies. I don't recall it being a big deal at all. Um, and eventually, uh, the midwife called for the for backup, um, and you know, I they had to intervene and they had to remove it. And because of that intervention, um, I lost a lot of blood. Um, I hemorrhaged about 800 milliliters, which is about two pints of blood. Um, and you know, it was a very painful experience. And I sat there thinking, wait a minute, I I, I had my baby. I've been holding my baby. I've been nursing my baby. Right. How the heck, you know, what is this? Yeah. And so I went home 24 hours later, um, you know, needing to build back my blood, needing some support at home, and then just having a lot of questions. and About um, what happened? How about, could this happen? Yeah. And then I came across really staggering information, which was that 
the complication I experienced was the leading cause of death for women and girls around the world. And that at that time, the more leading, than, what happened to you and did not kill you and you went home 24 hours later could have killed you and has killed so many others in other countries. Exactly. All over the world. Um, just by with a, a woman having a retained placenta and not having a doctor or um, blood in the event that you would need yeah. a transfusion. I did not, thankfully. Um, but I did need antibiotics. I did need to be catheterized. Yeah. I needed I needed support that if I was in a lot of other communities around the world, that would not have happened. And a woman can bleed out in less than two hours. So if you live in a rural part of even this country, um, a two-hour drive to a hospital or to a specialist. Yeah, which exists all over this country. So let's talk about how this is happening so much in this country. I mean, you were at one of the best hospitals in the country, in the world, here in New York. You had the care you needed. Um, it is staggering to realize what is fact, and that is that maternal mortality is on the rise in the United States. It's been on the rise for the last two plus decades. It's the only industrialized country where this is the case. And people, as you said, in, in rural America are being disproportionately affected. Uh, race plays into this as well, which we'll talk about in a moment. But how is it possible that this is such a problem in this country? I'm not sure where like the tipping point was where it reversed because in the 90s somewhere. Yeah, but we had made so much progress. Right. I mean, really from the 30s on. I mean, obstetrics as a specialty, um, hospitals, more hospitals, insurance um, plans, like all of these things were moving in the right direction for some time. I think at a certain point, not only was the health of some Americans getting worse, and we were having to look at new kind of emerging. Yeah health conditions. I mean, diabetes, um, obesity is one of the huge factors now, which I think 20 years ago was not something we were looking at as a bigger problem now. Yeah. Hypertensive disorders. There's a lot more cardiovascular um, problems with women's health. Um, All of these things have been happening sort of slowly, but kind of in silos, not connecting the dots and not seeing um, where they are interrelated or where pregnancy might impact a woman's health um, in such a severe way. Um, and then over-medicalization, right? So we think more doctors, more hospitals, better care, but not necessarily. There are certain medical interventions that actually increase a woman's chances for um, complications. Like what? Let's say multiple C-sections, which then increase your, um, your chances yeah. of potentially a ruptured um, uterus, um, potentially hemorrhage, um, any, any surgery. Um, sure. is potentially life-threatening. Uh, there are certain in, induction medications that have been contributed to um, maternal deaths and morbidities. Um, all of these things are kind of happening, and it's taken, it's taken a few people looking at the statistics in a city or in a state to really say, wait a minute, what's happening and here? And putting them all together. And putting them all together. 98% of these deaths are preventable. Well, 98% of the global deaths are preventable. And I would still say that the majority of deaths that are happening are happening in developing countries. Because, um, because of lack of access to very the things that are very easy to provide if there is enough awareness and enough funding and enough education, which is what you know the core of Every Mother Counts is. But that's staggering to think that something can be done and isn't for a number of these women. I know there's just a lot of gaps. I mean, clearly the amount of uninsured women in this country is a problem. And in this country where that 
is a really important factor. If you don't have it, you're you're in a bad place. And a lot of women will say, you know, I've I've gone through this before. I you know I can do this. They might. I think it's it's a kind of typical thing for women I've met all over the world to say, Fam my family goes first, my child goes first, and they may take the back seat to the health care. Um, yeah. If they have smaller children at home, they may not take the time to go seek care Make sure they're okay. until it's too late or until it's very clear that they absolutely need it. Um, and so um, I think what you're finding is that less women are getting the prenatal care, um, early enough on, which then allows you to recognize signs in advance and kind of sets you up for a more successful um, delivery and outcome. And then, you know, postpartum care is still a, a really, it's a, it's, it's a whole. I think there's a lot more focus on the 24 hours of delivery and making sure that there's a healthy baby. And if the baby is not healthy, we have NICUs all over this country <laughs> that are there waiting um, and they're very expensive. Yeah. And so let's like think about the preventative side of, of this issue. Let's, let's have women's health care um, more accessible, accessible so that women go into this stage of their life you know, as, as healthy, healthy as, as possible. possible. Yeah. Makes everything go, go more smoothly. So 2005, this is two years after Grace is born, and you're six and a half months pregnant with your son, and you go to El Salvador which happens to be, I believe, where your mother was born, yeah. right? Uh, and, and you're working as an ambassador with CARE. That was a turning point for you. What did you see in El Salvador? So I knew after giving birth the first time in my experience delivering Grace that something around the birth and pregnancy space was something I was, I was connected to and I wanted to do something about, but I wasn't really sure how and what. Yeah. Um, and it took a little bit of time, a little bit more sort of study and research, and then I had an opportunity to travel with CARE to Central America. Yeah. Um, at first it was in El Salvador. It was, you know, hundred uh, places that I hadn't been, but I had this connection to El Salvador, and for whatever reason, that's what ended up happening. And I'm so happy that that was the place that I had this sort of aha moment. My mom came down with me. Um, we visited a, a lot of programs that CARE has that are all very much like poverty mm -hmm. um, focused. Uh, and the last day I spent at a, um, a clean water project. It was a partnership with USAID and CARE. And in that community, which was hours away from the capital city on paved roads, uh, unpaved roads, mm. um, women had been walking like miles to access clean water. And in that sort of daily trip that they would take, they were getting a little bit of um, antenatal or postnatal care. Mm. You know, the program had sort of seen that, oh, this is an opportunity. Women are coming, so let's, yeah. let's, let's meet them where they are. And so that's where I sort of, you know, realized if I gave birth in that community with my first pregnancy that had the unexpected um, uh, third stage of labor, I would not have made it. I'm sure I wouldn't have. And and I left that trip thinking, okay, this is a community that I, this is the kind of community that I want to yeah. be able to help and impact. Um, and I came back and I had, you know, pretty straightforward um, pregnancy and delivery with my son. Mm -hmm. And then as he was, you know, getting older and, um, you know, I, after I weaned him, I said, I'm going back in with care. You know, what can I do and where, where can I go? How can I be helpful? And so through them initially, I learned a lot about 
what was happening globally. Mm -hmm. um, started to travel a bit more with them to sort of see the barriers, but um, or understand the barriers mm -hmm. more deeply. They inspired me to go back to school again to work on a master's in public health. Mm -hmm. um, and it all just sort of came together. Like, you know, I have now knowledge, I have this experience, yep. I have... Um, Advocacy, you went to Capitol Hill. Yep, I, yeah, I'm knocking on doors, you know, sharing the stories that I, yeah. um, of, the, of the stories that I saw. Uh, but also, at that time, with advocacy around the global stuff is where I really learned that mm. the U.S. was doing so poorly. Was where, um, where it is. I was shocked. Uh, at that time, we were ranked 41st. And now, and today, now we're 47th. Yes. And so um, we've been falling behind even mm. in just the short period of time that I've been advocating for this issue. Uh, and so, you know, I think that the, the time has been so ripe to be able to connect not only what's happening at the global level. I mean, like, truly, global means the U.S. is included, right? Of course, yes. <laughs> um, but so many people, even in the global or public health spaces, they think of these as very separate. And um, it just became really important for me to, you know, like, this is what's happening here in sub-Saharan Africa, but look what's happening here. And it gets, I mean, as we should all care equally what's happening in every country, but when you talk to Americans about what's happening to mothers in America, you, their ears pick up. I mean, that's just, that's the reality. And especially now. I mean, yeah. healthcare is in yeah. such a precarious place exactly. right now. Um, you know, I had an... I mean, look, talk about, people hear us say essential benefits on television, talking about healthcare reform. Essential benefits includes maternal health. And people are arguing against that. There's a half Funding of the pop it, yeah. yeah, well, Insurance. half of the population that doesn't get pregnant and mm. can't get pregnant and won't get pregnant are saying, well, why is this a necessity? Mm. Well, in my mind, and this is how every conversation I've ever had in Washington with members on both sides, mm -hmm. is, you know, you have a wife, do you have a sister, do you have a daughter? <laughs> you know, like, that's where you start the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, because I think when, if you've gone through it and you see how important it is to have the right people by your side, mm -hmm. you know, whether it goes well or it doesn't go well, or to know how important those prenatal care checkups are, mm -hmm. or to know that even the sexual reproductive education and childbirth education mm -hmm. that needs to happen very early on, that all of that adds up. And ultimately, it's a family's health that we're talking about. That's a very important and good way to put it. Uh, in 2012, you called on people to boycott Mother's Day. Mm -hmm. That's a way to that's a way to stir things up, and but it was to call attention to this and to say if we're going to really celebrate Mother's Day, let's actually talk about what's out there and what's not for mothers. Yeah, I mean Mother's Day is an important time for an issue that is working on maternal health to um, have a moment to mm -hmm. educate the public, and you know it always strikes me um, that we spend so much at that time of the year. On Hallmark cards and chocolates. And flowers, right? Yeah. That um, $17 billion, wow. I believe. Really? And you think about, you know, just what is needed for um, for an aid budget, which is, I think, less than a billion dollars. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me. So it felt like, as a new organization coming to this space, that that would be a moment. Like, we couldn't really compete with all of the players out there, but yeah. let's just stop and take a second to say, like, what about every day that there are 800 women who are losing their lives 
because of pregnancy and childbirth-related complications. And it, I, I wasn't intended to be um, controversial, but of course, for the moms who really don't get the attention and the care and the yeah. love every day, they were like, well, what about my, this is my day and I'm not yeah. giving it up. And okay. so that was not the intention. Okay, but you but got more people talking about this, which is did. so important. We did, and now every year it's like, okay, how are we going to get them to talk about it again? <laughs> well, I think this year I'm not going to ask for flowers. I'm going to ask, you know, help every mother counts or help organizations like that. For, for many people who might not know and they hear about your advocacy here for the first time, you have, uh, you went back and got your master's. You've held positions at Harvard Medical School, the Harvard School of Public Health, uh, the Board of NYU Nursing School. You've done so much to you know, surround yourself with this and, and deeply, deeply learn on this front. Um, your documentary, No Woman, No Cry, begins with these sort of like beautiful scenes of, I don't know, you're maybe seven, eight months pregnant at the beginning there. Yes. And um, you, you, you told me at the outset, I'm a pretty private person. But here we see home video <laughs> of you, I don't know, taken by your husband, I'm not sure. Yeah. And you really let people in for this one. You know, I had never made a film before, and uh, I was so passionate about the issue, and I sort of went out there. It took me two years to make this film, and I was at school at the same time. And it didn't occur to me until we were in the edit room that, like, okay, well, how we get, like, why are people following it? Like, why are you making yeah. this film? And I needed to tie four countries that were so different together. together. And it really, I mean, it was surprising to me that it, that it hadn't occurred to me before that, but it was like, okay, wait a minute. I do have film from yeah, when I when just I delivered. Pregnant, yeah. And then once I had that film and yeah, found actually, it. Yeah, actually, you take us into the delivery room with yeah, you in those moments. which is really the moments where everything started to shift in the room. And then I had to go dig for more. I was like, I actually don't have as much pregnant as I thought I did, but we found some. Yeah. And so, yeah, every time that I see the film, and I've seen it probably more times than a filmmaker would typically see the <laughs> film that they made, because of that, it's oh, just it's so extra personal. painful. <laughs> but in it, as you say, you tie together these circumstances, these personal stories in four different countries. One of them that really stood out to me is Susan. This is a woman who died of amniotic fluid embolism, mm -hmm. something I'd never heard of. And then you go on to talk about how there's one doctor, you know, in America who specializes in that. I mean, even in this country, having the care for these specialty needs can be lacking. Yeah, I mean, I think today that there are more, or at least I've learned about more since. I mean, there are all of these um, conditions like HELP syndrome, like, um, you know, obviously preeclampsia has been around for a long time. It's still one of the big complications yeah. that a lot of women yeah. um, can go through. But I now know so many of the people that are so focused on this. But at that time, it's true. There yeah. was one doctor who reached out and he said, you know, please, <laughs> like, please work with us. Yeah. Um, and that's one of those instances that I think 80% of cases of AFE are um, preventable, but it's one of the ones that is actually much harder. And it's um, that story really struck me too. I met a lot of families who lost loved ones mm -hmm. to a maternal death, and many of them mm -hmm. um, do not have the freedom to be able to speak because there are legal cases pending, um, hospitals, and you yeah. know, there's just, yeah. it's very All complex. All that paper. I remember signing so much of this paperwork when I was going in to give. Yes. Yeah. And in that story, yeah. this was a person who, 
Um, this was her fourth child. She and her husband, mm. um, they had an obstetrician and they were in a hospital, but they had an obstetrician who really believed in them and their ability and their desire to have a natural unmedicated birth. And so sometimes it's confusing in, in the scene because it, people will think that they're at home, but no, right. they have a doctor who just yeah. supports that, that kind of birth. And then something that was not uh, something that could be screened mm -hmm. um, happened. And I think sometimes the reaction of a, of a medical staff can be sometimes another barrier because it is it is a rarity in a lot of hospital settings. And so if you don't have preparedness training for all of these various scenarios, people freeze up. Um, they can't move quickly enough. They can't transport a woman when she's in such a state. And, you know, for a, a man like Robbie, you know, he could have lost both mother and child, but fortunately their son um, survived. Yeah. And yeah. Um, we're still in touch a bit. Yeah. Um, you know, these stories, you know that. Of I course, mean, they tug. I mean, yeah, you, li you live them, you breathe them with these people. At the, at the core of your belief and at the core of this issue is, uh, is the same principle that the Gates Foundation, for example, shares, and that is that all lives have equal value. But all women and all mothers in this country aren't living that. They're not being treated the same. I mean, you you just told me the staggering statistic. I know African-American women are four times more likely in the U.S. to die from pregnancy. And you said in, in New York City it's something like 12 times? 12 times in New York City. And there are pockets all over the country where that's true. Um, but given that I live here and yeah. that we have such great care, as you said, and some of the best hospitals in the country and the world yeah. are here. Um, so you need to, we need to take a look at that. Um, I think, you know, that this, we've been very focused on solutions with Every Mother Counts, and mm -hmm. so community health workers, doulas, um, that My are, doula life safe. I mean, right? she was, that, she was remarkable. Because what, yeah. doula, and not everybody knows what a doula is no. even, but doulas are essentially uh, patient advocates, someone who really is there for, you know, regardless of doctor, midwife, mm -hmm. they kind of, you know, they can, whatever the birth is that you want, they're going to help you get that, mm -hmm. that outcome. Um, so what's really important in certain populations is that you have someone from the communities themselves, someone where there is an established trust or where um, women aren't treated with discrimination or judgment. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of women, um, you know, who are fearful of getting health care because or seeking care through their pregnancy because they're treated like, well, wait, how many kids do you have? And, oh. Do you, you know who's the father of this child, and um, they feel God forbid they have an opiate addiction or another kind of dependency. Mm -hmm. um, there is a lot of blame and shame, and without really looking at the root causes mm -hmm. of these social determinants. The new series just launching uh, this week on CNN Go is Giving Birth in America, and this is four separate short films that take us inside these very personal experiences of mothers giving birth in New York and Louisiana and Florida. Tell me where this series came from and what you hope to achieve by just getting these stories out there. I think after I made No Woman No Cry and then started Every Mother Counts, we continued to tell stories, short form mm -hmm. stories in a lot of the countries where we were investing. And time and time again, every audience was the most shocked and horrified by the U.S. And so rather than just sort of list the causes and complications and some of the factors, yeah. we thought, let's go, let's go take a deeper look. And so at first, we started with New York, again, because we're focused here and yeah. this is where we're, we're based. Um, we had a grantee that was in Bed-Stuyvesant, um, Brooklyn. 
let's tell a story here looking at the doula care as one of the, the solutions. And then we had a grantee in Central Florida, mm -hmm. and so we had real insight into mm -hmm. the population that she was serving there. Then we picked, um, we thought, let's pick a state that's totally different than these two states, and we went to Montana. Yeah, very um, rural Very community. rural uh, a family that um, had a, a complicated pregnancy, and then because of that complicated pregnancy, she needed to have you know, mm -hmm. a more of an emergency. She needed better care for this for the last child, and of course, because she lived far away, something happened, and she had to go back in. And it's it's one that I think surprises people mm -hmm. because you know this is a, a. I don't think we understand how rural our country actually is. Um, I think for New Yorkers, it's like it's unfathomable, right. even though New York State has some very rural yes. parts as well. Um, but I think that one got a lot of visibility just because it was so unlike anything mm -hmm. that they that audiences were expecting to see. And then, you know, we showed those films through twenty end of twenty fifteen through twenty sixteen. We were in an election year. Healthcare yeah. was not being talked about enough, especially women's health care, but talked about in a sort of polarizing way. Yeah. Thought, let's go, let's tell another one. We're not done yet. We can keep telling these stories. We can tell 50 stories yeah. at least. Um, and so we had an opportunity to go down to Louisiana, which also is ranked very poorly for our national statistics and in a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And um, we went in about a year ago um, during a very, like, hurricane season. Yeah. So there were some flooding and storms. Not when we started shooting, but of course, as midway you were there. through and the women that are featured in our giving birth in america louisiana film these two women were both um you know they showed us what it would be like what it could be like to be displaced yeah um to be far from family to be without health care in such a critical time in their lives. Um, one uh, woman, Brianna, she, in her situation, she has more support. She has a mom who is, you know, in her life. She has a partner. She has, um, you know, she has a job. She, like, she's got, so, she's got some stability. Yeah. But um, Tanisha, the other mom, you know. All alone. All alone. Mm -hmm. And she just breaks my heart every time I see this film um, to think about going through pregnancy, being displaced, like having, a, you know, acute morning sickness and not being able to be around when you're in a home that doesn't have a power or electricity for a period of time. Mm -hmm. And so for this film to be coming out now when we've just come through this horrible season. And imagine all those stories we haven't heard. Exactly. From all those people in Texas and in Florida and in Puerto Rico. Exactly. So, you know, Every Mother Counts has been investing in, um, in programs in the United States for a number of years now. Mm -hmm. But even through our emergency fund grant, mm -hmm. which has been mostly deployed in countries like Nepal, Bangladesh, yeah. Syria, this year... It's here? It's been here. Wow. Um, Houston, Puerto Rico, uh, St. Croix, I mean, Florida... Um, yeah, this has been a unique uh, season, and I, I, I fear that this is only going to get worse. Obviously, given climate change and and the impact of that on health, and I think we'll see more of that overlap. I mean, if you think of Puerto Rico, half that island now, six seven weeks after Hurricane Maria, still has no power. And the water. And the water, and the transportation issues with roads torn up. I mean, imagine what so many mothers about to deliver, you know, in labor trying to get to the doctor, to the hospital, or have someone come to them to deliver 
what they're going through. I know, I mean, vulnerable populations are vulnerable no matter what, but then when you, you know, throw yeah. a natural disaster or a humanitarian exactly. crisis on top of that, it's just absolutely devastating. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, paternity and maternity leave and how this all ties in, right? Because I'm so fortunate to work for a company where I just automatically get three months off fully paid and that is not the reality for most Americans when you have a child. My husband works for a company that gets the same benefits, right? For fathers, which is very rare. Um, this is being debated in Washington right now, the role the government should or should not have in providing this. How important is leave for new mothers and for their partners to help? Because almost all of these maternal deaths are post, they're, they're post delivery, mm -hmm. right? And. I mean, it's it's so important. I mean, I think that the conversation has definitely been getting stronger and mm -hmm. louder, um, especially in the last year. And I think there are more states that are recognizing that mm -hmm. they need to step up. Um, but I think there's only five states currently. And, you know, really companies are sort of one by one what mm -hmm. they're able to do. And there have been some real leaders. And I think that's always really helpful. But again, I think that like not seeing the connection mm -hmm. that, you know, pregnancy is not an isolated event. Right. Um, if we're taking care of our employees, of our citizens mm -hmm. um, and allowing them to go through this process with that support um, and recognizing that it's not just the women carrying the child, that really it is a family, mm -hmm. it's a family affair. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm in a, a country like Sweden where, or Germany, you know, that have such incredible policies and, and universal health care and all of those things, you see, you see what is possible and you see why the outcomes mm -hmm. are so much better. It's so clear. It, is it incumbent, in your opinion, Christy, uh, for the government to, to be part of this solution? Because I think about um, mom and pop business owners, small businesses where, you know, the argument I hear from them a lot is we cannot afford to give our employee three months off. We, we, we will not be able to stay in business. Um, and that, you know, our company can afford to do that and they do. What, I mean, is there some role for government you believe here, like, like in Europe? I do believe so. I know that I know that it's complicated, and I know that it's not the popular um, idea. And right now, but you do have Democrats and Republicans advocating for it. It's just yeah. about how are they going to pay for it? Yeah, I mean, I essentially every mother counts as a small business, and yeah. so um, we have a we have a gold standard in maternity in a maternity leave package because that's what we do and we believe in it. But absolutely, it's expensive. If everyone, <laughs> if everyone on my small team were to become pregnant at the same time, yeah. it, would be, it could be somewhat catastrophic. Right. So we don't, I, I don't personally have those answers. Um, I think it's in recognizing what, what is within your realm of possibility, having the support of the state, mm -hmm. you know, at the state level, mm -hmm. um, which might differ from state to state. Right. And then I think, you know, Yes, together pushing and challenging at the national level, like what can we do mm -hmm. to improve? We know we might not be able to get there like some of our European um, mm -hmm. counterparts as quickly because they've been doing it for so long and yeah. have figured out a way. We've made such a complex system that it's very hard to untangle ourselves mm -hmm. now and start over. But I think, and again, companies like CNN, like Deloitte, yeah. like um, there are many companies. Facebook, the tech companies yeah. are really leading on this. Yeah. yeah, and they should. And and I think soon enough, um, 
it'll be the norm and it'll take a little time, but it has to happen. Since I have you here and this is very much in the news and you've spoken out about it, let's talk about sexual harassment across industries from Silicon Valley to media to Hollywood and beyond. It is pervasive. We're talking about it now. These brave, brave women have come forward with their accounts. Um, You spoke recently to Women's Wear Daily about this, and you talked about it being pervasive in the fashion industry when you were, you know, in your modeling career. What was it tolerated? What did you witness? You know, I always look at, at, at fashion or any industry as a microcosm, right? I, I feel like what this, this whole issue has brought up is that it's happening everywhere and on, on so many levels. And so for me, my perspective, and when I commented to WWD about it, I hadn't had a, a, a personal experience mm-hmm. in the fashion industry where someone sort of, um, you know, came on to me or said something inappropriate. I felt like I was really lucky in that yeah. I either had an adult that was sort of supervising me, which is rare, yeah. <laughs> or um, or I was successful enough that, that I was handled with kid gloves and people were afraid to, to mm. be that way with me. But as we've However, seen, it's happened knew, to women of every level. Yeah, and I, and I, I still knew that it was happening. You know, it it just was, and again, when I say tolerated, not like tolerated like, oh, it's okay. Just kind of like this, it it just, it's, I don't know who would be the sort of police of it. Mm. Again, there's no union. There's no, there's no, there's no entity that's supposed to be watching out for, um, for the people in the industry. Um, I think you would find more with like the designers themselves that, you might find it like any other company where yeah. it's more of a corporate structure where there actually are HR departments and yes. there, there actually are protocol, even if they've fallen short for a lot of um, women who have yeah. come forward. But when you're sort of a free agent, I think you're even that much more vulnerable. You know, yeah. there is nobody. There's sure, no place watch, to complain. And, there's no. And often, you know, as we've learned through Gretchen Carlson's account, HR departments aren't always right. fighting for you. Right. Uh, you hope they are. So you have a 14-year-old daughter. I have a 20-month-year-old daughter, and we both have the same dream and hope for them is that they don't experience this. I mean, you didn't. I haven't, which is sort of shocking, actually, now hearing all these allegations, but we've been among the fortunate ones. Do you think, Chrissy, that we are at uh, a turning point, a tipping point? Is this the moment where things finally change? I hope so. I really do hope so. I mean, certainly it's an opportunity to talk to my daughter and my son Right. Have you been? We have. Because um, they're young. They're 11 yeah, and 14. 14 and almost 12. And, yeah. you know, they go to a school that is, um, that's got a real, like, social justice um, focus in the yeah. curriculum. And so my daughter is in, you know, a reproductive rights group. And, you know, like, they're, they're talking about a lot of the issues, the social yeah. issues right now. Um, so I know they're talking about it at school, but we have talked about it as well. I mean, you know, they'll call us out sometimes for things like, well, mom, that's a sexist thing to say or to think or like things that we don't even realize are sexist or racist because they're so accepted in our society. They're seeing things with really fresh eyes and fresh ears Mm -hmm. and they're calling us out. So I'm hopeful that by being aware so early, um, that they'll be able to continue with that. But I think, I think these conversations like that, that very subtle thing to say that, you know what, 
our son is doesn't have a girlfriend. He's still very shy around, <laughs> around the opposite sex. But just, you know, it's it's not just no means no, but it's like, you know, you need to be very, very careful about the way that you express whether mm -hmm. you like someone, whether you mm -hmm. think that they like you back, whether they... Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's so basic, and yet yeah. it's a conversation that needs to be had by all of us. You uh, have been named at Times 100 Most Influential People just a few years ago. Your husband has said that he and your children watch your work, your philanthropy, and you have really defined for them what it means to give back. As you sit back and look, and I know you have, you're just getting started, really, uh, with Every Mother Counts as you keep pushing forward more and more. What do you think when you remember that 20-something-year-old who thought, there's got to be more I can mm. do? Um, hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm, I am proud of, of, of the choices that I've made. And I think about the choices um, as examples to my kids mm -hmm. all the time of, you know, Sometimes we're just trying to get through homework that like, no, I can, you, you can choose this and you know that it's actually a right to be able to complete your education and yeah. to be able to continue with it. Like yeah. it's a luxury and it's, it's, it's so important. So I feel good about all of that. I, I think there, I always think there's more, there's so much more to do. Never satisfied? Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> there's just too many people that I know that are doing so much more. Aww. And uh, and I look at them, and I I want to support them. I want to um, bring more attention to their work. I want to um, I want them to have the recognition. You know, it's wonderful mm -hmm. to get the recognition. Don't get me wrong. Um, yeah. I've been flattered, and and it's it's an honor. However, um, there are so many that that don't that really deserve it much more so than I do. Uh, for I think so many of us women, especially when we're younger. So much focus is put on from society on, on our appearance and how we look. And here you are, a, you know, what shall I say, former supermodel saying, in your words, being who you are, being your best self has nothing to do with what you look like. I believe that. I do. I mean, I, I see that it's, it's so hard to have been, to have grown up in an industry that that's such a focus. Yeah. And one that because it was such a focus of others that I didn't sort of get stuck with it or on it. I was really consciously thinking about like, no, no, I want to, I want to be so much more yeah. so that then that's how I look is just, it just is, it's nothing to do with like why I'm successful or why, um, I have opportunity. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, be I believe that I, I, I think that, you know, to have an education, um, is what's giving me more confidence than all the attention in the world mm. in my industry. Going back, getting those Going degrees. Going back and, and getting those degrees, um, making those relationships, um, you know, getting uncomfortable sometimes, yeah. you know, to stand up in a class every semester and, I'm Christy, I'm a sophomore. You know, like, <laughs> like that, all that stuff, it's like brutally painful, but it, it's so... Um, it's so important to continue to do. And when I think about like why I feel more confident today, yes, with age and experience and yeah. so many things, but I really think that those choices and, and the education itself, Gave I feel like that. that gives me, that no, has given me No one can take that away from you. All of our looks fade. <laughs> no one takes your education away.
Yeah. Uh, as we wrap up, someone that I've been really impressed with as I've followed her career and, and interviewed is Carly Kloss. Mm. And you are a mentor to her, and you have, uh, I think, helped guide her in so many ways. You, you were the one who gave her the courage to apply to NYU. I believe you wrote her, her recommendation letter. She has been so impressive as she has just skyrocketed in fame and celebrity and her modeling career. She works with underprivileged kids to teach them how to code. You know, something I wish I knew and something I want my daughter to learn, code with code with Clossy. Can you just speak to that, the importance of mentorship of, of young women coming up and just, you know, your hopes for seeing people that have this platform use it for advocacy on other issues? Yeah, I mean, I have to say Carly has impressed me so much. Um, I met her early on in her career and um, she was so sweet and very complimentary. She's from a family of all girls too Mm -hmm. and um, has a really close relationship with her dad. There was a lot of parallels. We started with the same photographer. There were, there, mm-hmm. and she was a dancer. I had been a horseback rider. And, like, there were things that I think we related to with each other. Um, and to have the opportunity to, over time, get to know her really well. She's been incredibly supportive of Every Mother Counts. She's come down to Haiti with us. Mm-hmm. Her father was an ER doctor, so she has a, a you know, an interest and an understanding of, um, of that. And, um, you know, she she to me is is even more like inspiring because she did all these things so early. Like, you know, even going back to school. I mean, she was thinking about this at twenty. Yeah. I was saying it at twenty, but it took me another five years to do, to it. do it. You know, she everything maybe because of access to information and social media, mm-hmm. it's just everything is expedited mm-hmm. in her situation, and um, to see her take on coding, not just initially like her learning curve was so quick and then to go out and say like, no, no, I want my own programs and I'm going to create programs and curriculum and I'm going to do that in multiple states. That's not easy. I know from Every Mother Counts, that's not easy. She really lives it. Both of you live it. It's not just, I'm going to put my, slap my name on this at all. Yeah. So thinking about how the impact of someone like her on my daughter, mm. um, my daughter just realized recently that she's just kind of discovered that world okay. now. <laughs> and she's like, Do you know, you know, Carly? I was like, yes, I know Carly. <laughs> See, now you can listen to me. Um, exactly. And I was like, like, listen, Carly codes. You need to get you need in the to learn how to do program. that. <laughs> so you've said to my kids, I'll always be the mom who barely shaves her legs. <laughs> And, and doesn't color her hair. That is a quote, your words. It's true. Um, <laughs> what, what do you want your children to say about you one day when Finn and Grace are I hope those aren't older. the first things that they think about. My mom they would be true. <laughs> yeah, my mom, was, she was fun, but she could have shaved her legs more frequently. Um, what do you want them to say about gosh. you when they think about your work and what you stood for outside of being their mother? Mm-hmm. I would want them to to think that you know that that I cared about others more in a way than myself mm. um, in many ways, probably that you know my focus was um, and is about about you know everyone having the same opportunities and chances and um, accesses uh, it, I think that's important for them. Um, it's important to my peers, to my sisters. It's like, you know, we get, some of us get to choose every day who we, who we want to be mm-hmm. and um, to always choose the path that's going to serve others, that's going to benefit more than just ourselves. I think that's, 
you know, I've said this before, but I think it's if there were more of us that were thinking about that and improving the lives and, and, and quality of life for other people, we would all be in a better place. Thank you for this. Thank you for opening my eyes. I think I am going to go into this delivery of our second child just thinking about how fortunate I am as I walk through the hospital doors compared to so many women in this country and abroad. So thank you for what you do. And everyone can go to everymothercounts.org mm -hmm. to find out more. Thank you, Christy. Thank you, Pop. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at Poppy Harlow CNN. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.